0: Good morning, church family. My name is Kristen, and I have the honor of reading our scripture today from Colossians 3, 1 through 17. These words come to us recorded by human hands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and therefore they come to us today as the very word of God. So let's ready our hearts to hear together the word of our Lord from Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all,
1: Well, over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years um, in evangelical preaching, we've put forward <clears throat> um, a lot of biblical wisdom. Uh, there's kind of been this mentality of, well, you know, Christianity in the Bible, spirituality, it's less relevant than it used to be. Let's kind of show that the Bible is still relevant, that uh, God's wisdom is still Relevant for people's modern lives, and and I think this is a good thing. I'm not I'm not saying that this by itself is is necessarily bad, um, but but that's led to a lot of kind of a, a great focus on biblical wisdom in our our teaching. And so you know you'll see sermon series like for example like home improvement. You know this has been a popular sermon series. You've probably seen this in a church. Because here's biblical wisdom for how to be married or to how to raise children. It's how to. How to use the wisdom of the Bible to have a healthier and happier home life. And again, that there's a lot of that in the scripture. So I'm not saying it's not there. Uh, you, there's a lot of sermon series like on decision making, you know, or, and these are just things I pulled off the internet. Um, and then you know, there's been sermon series, a lot of sermon series on managing money, how to manage money, God's ways. And again, it, it what it's taking, is taking biblical wisdom, which we certainly see throughout the Bible. And it's kind of, kind of the idea of this preaching a lot of times is, look, we need to prove to them that God's word is still relevant. (laughs) Let's show them that God's wisdom can actually work for them. And maybe we can kind of back them into worship, right? Maybe we can kind of like prove that, you know, the wisdom of God will help you out and therefore you should worship God. And then, then we can get them, you know, to the whole Jesus and the cross and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, I, I want to be careful here because there's so much wisdom in Scripture, so I'm not critiquing a biblical wisdom, but I am critiquing, I think, a lot of this kind of methodology, that we can win them with the practical wisdom and then move them to worship. And, and I think if that happens, if that's all that has happened to you in your Christian spirituality, first of all, you'll never really get worship, <laughs> And second of all, you'll never really get wisdom. What the Bible says is it's not that wisdom leads us to worship so much as that it's worship that leads us to wisdom. When we realize who we are and who God is, then all of a sudden his wisdom is not this thing that we kind of manipulate to make our lives better, but it becomes a response of course we would follow the way. Our obedience is not something we begrudgingly do to kind of get heaven someday because I got to be righteous to make God happy. No, all of a sudden, if we, if we begin with worship, his righteousness is good and right and beautiful. Of course, we want to obey him. And that's what makes this passage, I think, so profound. It, it kind of cuts against this. <laughs> It cuts against this. It, it, it leads us to what I think is the nature of the Christian life. And that's really my first point here. Listen to Colossians 3 1 through 3, real quick. It's an amazing passage. If you have been raised with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've experienced a resurrection in Jesus, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of earth. And this is an amazing passage. Look at verse three. So if you've been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, you have died. You have died. And the life that you now live, it's kind of similar to Paul in Galatians 2, your life now is hidden with Christ in God. So this is why I, 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 want to, I want us to be careful with Christian teaching. I think a lot of Christian teaching is, hey, let's use the Bible to help you live a better life. When the nature of Christianity says, <laughs> if you're in Christ, <laughs> you have died. It cuts very much against kind of the secular humanism of our day, which talks a lot about you and your self fulfillment and your uh, self appeal and your self worth. You know, y'all have heard me say that the anthem of a secular humanistic age is the song by Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson We Are the World, right? We are the world, right? We are the children. We are the ones who'll make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There's a choice we're making, and then here it is. We are saving our own lives. We are justifying ourselves. We're making a better day, just you and me. That's the water that we swim in. That's the secular humanism that we swim in. And so, of course, that kind of a secular humanism would be drawn to... Here's some biblical tips on how you can save your lives. Here's some wisdom on how you can make a brighter day. But the real nature of Christianity doesn't say that. It says, (laughs) if you're a Christian, you're dead. You have died. To be a Christian, you have to die. (laughs) And you have to be raised with Christ. Now, I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you, for people like you, hardworking, smart, achieving, Atlantans, this is a hard message. Your whole life you were told you are special. You are great. Get out there and take life by the horns. Or like T.I. or or Rihanna I guess said, you're gonna be a shining star in fancy clothes in fancy cars. Then you'll see you're gonna go far because everyone knows just who you are. <laughs> so live your life. Live your life. That's the message of the world. That's the message of kind of modern secular humans. We know that. That makes sense to us, right? That, that message makes a lot of sense. If you're, if you're kind of new to Christianity, you're like, I like the we are the world. And, and here's the deal. We all do. We all do. So, I mean... Welcome to the club. But the Christian message is different. What we read in Colossians 3 says, no, you've died. To be a Christian, you have to die. Now, you may be saying, okay, hold on. Help me understand this, Jason. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Um, there's, a, there's a type of movie, um, and movie critics uh, call it the metaphysical second chance movie. A metaphysical second chance movie. It's a, it's a whole kind of type of movies that you watch, and you really watch these movies at Christmas Christmastime. These are, there's a lot of our favorite movies that are meso- metaphysical second chance movies that come out at Christmas time. and what happens in a metaphysical second chance movie is that somehow, somewhere in the movie, the laws of nature are kind of bent so that the main character of the movie can kind of see their life in a different way, so one of my favorite metaphysical second chance movies is It's a Wonderful Life, you know, It's a Wonderful Life. The, the laws of space and time are bent a little bit, and George Bailey, who's the title character, gets to see his life in a different way. He gets this metaphysical second chance. He gets to kind of peer in on his own life. It's a great moment of clarity, and he gets to see what the world would be like without him, right? Another one that I love is Family Man. You know, you ever see this movie with Nicolas Cage? And it's the same thing that happens. He gets to see what his life would have been like if he would have married his college sweetheart. It's a metaphysical second chance. He gets to kind of peer on, in on, a different version of his life. Now, here's the deal with us. We live in our little world. We go day by day, we follow, of course. We're listening to the songs of the day. We're we're embedded in the values of the day, and it's very hard sometimes in our busy lives to have these moments of clarity. We we usually, in just kind of the busyness of life, we adopt what the world around us is saying. This is what should be valuable to you. This is what makes you important. And it's usually, it's not exactly the TI version with fancy clothes and fancy cars, but it's some version. It's a more practical version of that. I'm valuable if I succeed. I'm valuable because of what I've done and because of what I've bought and because of who I know. I am saving my own life. But every once in a while, a good friend dies Suddenly, or you get diagnosed with a disease, or you lose your job, or you just get caught in something really shameful, or you come to a worship service like this, and this Bible is opened up, and and God, by His Spirit, starts speaking to you. And what God is doing in those moments is He's giving you a metaphysical second chance. He's allowing you to peer at your own life and ask the question, what is my life? What is my life? Who am I really? What am I really for? And I hope that when God lets you see those things that you begin to see that you are a human being made in the image of God. You're made to know God. You're made to worship God. You're made by God and for God, not not for yourself. I hope that God begins to let your heart see those things. That your life is so much bigger than just the kind of here and now of the day. That's a metaphysical second chance. He, he's, God is helping you to see who you really are and what you are really for. And when, when he starts to do that, we begin to see that our sin, <laughs> our disobedience to God has ruined us. And, and, and I think so often we can kind of trick ourselves into believing that our problem is just a few little select sins here and there. Well, I lied that one time, or I stole that one time. But I really think when God gives you a real metaphysical second chance, you, really just, you realize, wait a second. <laughs> Maybe it's not that I just sin every now and then. Maybe I really don't obey God much at all. You know, Jesus said that the two basic commands of God are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So if I ask you that, is that what you're like? Like when you think about how much time and energy you spend like kind of making sure you're comfortable and you're well recognized and you're well known compared to how much time and energy you spend loving and worshiping God. <laughs> is that what you're like, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And if you're saying, well, no, no. I mean, good, you're, you're in good company. Just look around you. Jesus said the second commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Is that how we are? Is that what we're like? Is that the kind of people we are? Where we spend as much energy and as much time seeking the good of our neighbor? Or we spend as much time and energy seeking the good of our neighbors. as we do worrying about our own stuff. Is that what we're like? No, we're, we're in good company. When we have these little metaphysical second chance moments, we realize, man, I have a, I have a big problem here. I can't save my own life. I I can't save my own life. There's there's nothing I can do to save myself. And and we, we start to realize how deeply and profoundly we need a savior. And look, the good news of this, the good news of the gospel is that that's exactly who Jesus is. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. You see, Jesus didn't come primarily to be a great moral teacher, even though he was a great moral teacher. But that's not his primary purpose. He didn't come primarily to break racial barriers down, even though that's exactly what he did. He didn't come primarily to be a model of humility and love. He He didn't come primarily to expose the evil of the Roman world. He didn't come primarily to expose the evil of the whole Jewish temple system, even though he did that. He didn't come primarily to heal the sick or cast out demons or to give sight to the blind, even though he did all of those things and more. I want you to hear this. Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, primarily came to save sinners like you and me. And when you've realized who you actually are, that you were made for God, and that your sin has separated you from God. That, that makes a verse like this so profound. That in Christ, through faith in Christ, in Christ you have died. The, the, the sinful you, the, the, the self-controlling you has died. Faith in Jesus means this. It's to forsake your own autonomy It's not just about gaining a little practical wisdom along the way. No, it's forsaking your own autonomy. You have died in Christ. And the life that you now live, your life now is hidden with Christ and God. But of course, the amazing news of the gospel is that not only have we died with Christ, we are also raised with Christ. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, but he's already covered this. You have been raised with Christ and so, in result of that, seek the things that are above. If Jesus has done this, if Jesus has reconciled us to God, if we are saved, if we have such a great Savior, then, then we can be reconciled to God, that we can actually live the life that we were supposed to live. This is the nature of salvation. You have to get that. You have to get this, or you, you don't understand the rest of Colossians, Jesus has completed something for us. He has done this great work on our behalf. He has died for us. We have died with him. And now our sinful life is dead and we've been raised with him. This is what it means to be a Christian. If by faith you trust in Jesus, you've died, your life and all of your sin has died with him and your future hope, your life now has been raised with him. And if that has happened to you, if that has really happened to you, then the response, the only response of that is worship. Don't you see? It's not this like, look, if, if all you come to Jesus for is some practical wisdom here and there, <laughs> you'll take some of it. You'll say, yeah, there's some good stuff here. But some of the wisdom of Jesus you'll be ashamed of. You'll be like, 21st century people do not believe this anymore. Some of the, or if, if all obedience is to Jesus is something that you do to, you know, get in good with God, then it'll be begrudging. And grudging be like, why is God so hard on me? Why does he make life so hard? But if, you, if you're dead, <laughs> and if you've been raised, and if you realize that God is not calling you to live for something, but he's calling you to live from this identity that Jesus has already given you, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. Notice how all of those words are past tense. Raised, seated, called by God. Well, then we live into worship, then his way is good, then we obey him with joy. Don't you see? If you have died with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. You have to get this to understand the rest of Colossians, the rest of the text. Now, in the rest of the text, with the time I have left, Paul basically lays forward two commands. So we've talked about the first thing here, which is the nature of the Christian life. But the second thing is that he talks about, the two commands is putting to death what is earthly in you. So putting to death kind of your old self, your old life, and putting on godliness. So in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of who you are now in Christ, you've died with Christ, and now you've been raised with Christ, in light of this, put to death what is earthly in you, put to death the old man, and, and put on or bring to life this new man. Now, I, there, this is a big passage. It's a weighty passage. It's a thick passage. And I don't have time to kind of go into every word. But, but two big categories here, at least in the putting to death, under the point of putting to death what is earthly in you. The first is putting to death your, your earthly appetites. Putting to death your earthly appetites. Look at verse five with me. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. You know, it's interesting. Most commentators believe that all, all of this is really related to sexual sins, kind of the pagan, worldly, sexual sin of that day. And it was interesting to me as I think, my well, man, Paul lists out four things. Put to death this, this, this sexual perversion in your heart. But as I was thinking about that, you know how often we as elders in this church are dealing with sexual sin among this body? It's all the time. You know, our, our world is not. I actually don't think that our world is as sexualized, as hard as that is to believe. People say, well, things are new, things are changed now. No. The Roman world, I actually think was more sexualized than our world is. But but our world is kind of becoming like that again. the the Christian impact on the West is kind of being lost and we're kind of moving back into this pre-Christian paganism where we start to believe this idol of sex will comfort us, will soothe us, where it's our identity, right? That's the message that's put forward to you all the time. So no wonder we have to fight these things. We have to struggle with these things. But, But I just want to say to you, listen, if you're in Christ, you've died with Christ and you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. If you've died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, you can know God, and no sexual companionship or experience can match knowing God. And then he flips to another idol that we so often deal with, covetousness. This is, uh, the better word for this would just be, would just be kind of um, addictive greed, Addictive greed, covetousness, addictive greed. You can never have enough, right? You can never really be satisfied. And then he says, this is idolatry. An idol is letting something else other than God have mastery over you. An idol, you're you're, you're guilty of idolatry when you go to anything else other than God that you go to for ultimate satisfaction. And aren't aren't these two, it's interesting. A lot of people go to sex. They say, well, that's going to make me satisfied. Or you go to money. People say, well, I, I put that behind. Now I'm really focused on my career. That could be signed for, now I'm just really greedy. I want to make a bunch of money. And that's how I'm going to prove myself. Listen, you've died. If you're in Christ, you've died. You've been raised with Jesus. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Don't Don't trade idols. <laughs> We so often get into this. Don't trade one idol for another. So I'm not gonna gonna focus on my love life anymore. I'm just gonna focus on, no, no, focused on Jesus. (laughs) Focus on the one who can truly satisfy your soul. Don't you see that you've been raised with Christ? Give him control of your imagination, your values, your passions. And what Paul then says, it's very interesting. Verse six, he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I be mean, like, wow, that's pretty intense. You know, think thinking about this verse this week. The longest treatise on the wrath of God is, that we see in the New Testament is Romans 1. And actually, in Romans 1, Paul deals with a lot of these same kind of things. And then he says, and this, this is the phrase that kind of grabbed me as I went back and read that passage. Then he says, he says, God gave them over to their lusts. I thought that was an interesting phrase. The wrath of God was manifest in them as God gave them over to their lusts. You know What this is, is it's a warning. Listen, if you're being given over to greed, if you're being given over to sexual sin, what, what this is saying is <laughs> God will give you over to that. On, on account of these things, the, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, you'll be separated from God. This is a warning. Don't, don't give heed to it. Don't, don't be given over to these lusts, these idols are strong. They will, they will destroy your soul. Heed this word of God. So if, if the first category here was being given over, putting to death the appetites of the flesh, the second is, is putting to death, and, and I couldn't think of a good word for this, but I, I think this is a, an okay word. It's, it's this idea of self-absorption. And I'm kind of getting this you know, notice uh, where, where Paul goes in this is he, he starts talking about all of the things that divide us. And where I'm getting this idea of self-absorption is he talks about the old self and its practices, and the new self that is renewed in the knowledge of God. OK? So I think he's kind of juxtaposing this idea of self-absorption, the old self and its practices which is trying to make an identity for itself. If you, if you have to save your own life, right? If you're, you're gonna be who you are in fancy clothes and fancy cars, right? If that's, if that's gonna be your identity, right? The modern kind of humanistic, secular ethic, then here's the deal, you'll be very protective. When somebody offends you, you'll be incredibly angry. When somebody tries to stand in your way of getting what you want, you'll hate them and you'll tear them down no matter what, right? And so that's where I think Paul's getting this because look at, the, look at where he goes. Look at, look at what this produces. He so says, put all of these things away, verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Don't lie to one another because you've put off the old self, Right? You're not living for a self. You have died. <laughs> but I love this. But he says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of the creator. Put on the new self, the, the, the self that you were made for, to know and to love God, to have the knowledge of God. And when we start to see this, all of these little divisions and petty arguments and these controlling angers, I, there are some of you today, and I know this is true of you, and look, I'm just looking around the room, and you're thinking, did God show him my face? He did not. But I know that this is true of some of you. There is controlling anger in your heart towards someone or something that has kept you from what you really want. And it's leading to malice and slander and all of these certain things. You've got to put that off. That's not who you are. You have died. Your identity now is not in this name that you're building for yourself. Your identity now is that you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. And when we do that, look, notice how all of these, all of these divisions fall apart. There's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. But Christ is all. He is our identity, He is our life. He, he. Now, it's in His name that we regard one another. There's a unity in the in the church. There's a unity among the people of God that transcends all of these things. You know, D. A. Carson has this great little quote that that Brad Smith, actually one of our elders, sent out to our elders yesterday. This just if you if you think if you read something and it's good, you can send it to me on Saturday, and it might make the sermon on Sunday. But I love this little quote that he sent. I think we have it up here. It says, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. Now, now you within the church, you may have friends, people that you find a lot of agreement with, people that you find a lot in common. So that, that happens within the church, but that's not the essence of the church. That's not the unity of the church. All of those things can fall apart quickly. Notice how he goes on. He says, what binds us together is not common education, It's not common race. It's not common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Now, what binds the people of God together? Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they've been saved by Jesus and they owe him common allegiance. This is kind of what I was talking about before. You know, it's... It's not wisdom that leads to worship. It's worship that leads to wisdom. It's not community that leads to worship. Even though you may, you may, you may find friends that know Jesus and that leads you to see him better, that, that certainly happens. But when you really start to love those people <laughs> is when you realize who they are and who you are in Christ and that God has brought you together. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And what does Jesus say? Love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You know, if you're living for an identity, if you're living for some sense of, I'm saving my life, I'm fulfilling some vision of myself that I have. You know Anybody that gets in the way with that, you'll be malicious toward, you'll slander, you'll be angry at. But if you have a life, if you've died with Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, then you can love even the hardest people, even the people that have hurt you in the deepest ways. So put off the appetites of your flesh, put off your sense of self-absorption. You have died and you've been raised with Christ. And put on, this is the third point here, put on godliness. Again, there's a long list here. I wish I had more time to kind of go through each one of these, but I've, I've categorized this with you. I think what Paul is doing here, and I actually think this is really helpful, is he's encouraging us to put on godliness. How do you put on godliness, right? I, I you know, uh, commentators have given illustrations here of putting on godliness like we put on clothes. Don't you wish it was that easy? If I said, hey, we have this closet, and humility, it's the green jacket. You put that on, and you're, well, that, that wouldn't make you humble, I guess, a green jacket. But it's the, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's the blue sweater, you know. Go put that on, and you'll be humble, or love and compassion. It's the, it's the gray pants. Go put those on. Don't you wish that we could just put on godliness like that? But that, I think what he is saying here is when he's saying to put on godliness, I think what he's saying, and I want you to get this. This is how we put on godliness. This is how we do it. He's saying, get a laser focus on Jesus. You gotta just look to Jesus. And you consider, and there's three categories I put together here. Look to the person of Christ, live by the word of Christ, and then operate in the name of Christ. So let's look at the first category here. Look to the person of Christ. Notice, notice what he does here in 12. He says, put on then, right? Put on the character of Christ as God's chosen ones. Put on godliness, and then he describes it. This is what Jesus is like. This is what our Lord is like. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another. And then he roots it, right? He says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Don't you see it? Do you see the character of Jesus? Do you see who he is like? He's so compassionate. He's so kind, He is so humble. Don't you see how he deals with us? He is so meek. He's so patient with us. He he so forgives us, even though it costs him everything. As Jesus does these things, you do these things. Look to the person of Christ. Then he says, above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. Most of all, put on love. Put on love. The most fundamental force in the entire universe is love. Because it is the nature of God. John tells us this. God is love. It's the force that binds Father, Son, Holy Spirit together. God exists in love. It's the most fundamental force in the universe. And because you were made in the image of God, you desire love. You desire love from God. And you desire love from one another, and I have good news for you. You know how you get love from God? You look to his son, Jesus, who died on your behalf, who lived a perfect life of righteousness on your behalf, and who overcame death, and through faith in him, you can live, you can know the love of God. And and in knowing the love of God, we can experience this love for one another that's not full of rivalries and dissensions. Put on love, which binds everything together In perfect harmony. In verse 15, I think he's re-reminding of this. I think this is, he's just re-reminding us of the gospel. He says, let the peace of Christ, the peace that you now have with God through Christ, Jesus has accomplished everything. So much so that if you are in Christ, you can stand before the the throne of God with confidence. Y'all have heard me talk about this before. You know, I love the old hymn that is, it's, and can it be, I know that song, Charles Wesley. And the last line, I always think about this, and it's amazing to think about. The last line says, bold, I approach the eternal throne of God and claim a crown through Christ my own. Okay, so you gotta imagine the scene. I think what Charles Wesley has in his mind is we're around the throne of God. And your name is called. I mean, just think about that. Your name, your individual name. God calls it out. Jason Dees. Now, if I'm left to save my own life, if I'm left to like take little bits of biblical wisdom and try to use it the best way I can, on that day, when I have to stand before God and give an account of my life, you know what I'm doing? I'm crawling under the chair. I, I cannot stand before God. There is nothing in me that is worthy of a holy God. But, the peace of Christ. And the peace of Christ is this, that I have died with Jesus. And by faith, I am raised with Jesus. And so on that day, bold, I approach the eternal throne of God. And I claim a crown that that really belongs to Jesus, but he has given it to me. And if you can live in that kind of peace and that kind of boldness, you can do anything. That's why I say, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. (laughs) Don't let how much money's in your bank account rule in your heart. Don't let I got this promotion this year rule in your heart. Don't let I hope this boy really asked me out after the service rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ. That's why, this is why we have baptism in the Lord's Supper every Sunday. It's a reminder to us of the peace of Christ, the peace with God that Christ has achieved for us. The second thing that he urges them towards, he says, Remember the person of Christ. The second thing he says, live by the word of Christ. Live by the word of Christ. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So, you hear what he's saying here? He's saying, What should frame you, what should square up your worldview is the word of Christ. You know, go out there in the world. You know, it's, it's amazing how predictable people are. You ask them, well, What newspaper do you, do you read? Or, you know, what. News channel do you watch or what podcast you listen to? If they tell you that, you can pretty much say, "Okay, well, I know, you know what you what you believe on this issue, this issue, this issue, this issue." People are pretty predictable, right? Because they're framed by a, a certain worldview. I think what this is saying is, let, let the Word of Christ frame you. Let it be the Word of God that frames you. You know, Jonathan Edwards has this great uh, little quote where he says. When the spirit of God comes, starts to come alive in your heart, the word of God, the Bible stories, the doctrines of faith, they go from being some opaque thing that you look at, right? There's the Bible. There's the Bible story. There's the doctrine of justification. There's the doctrine of forgiveness or whatever it is. They go from being some opaque thing that you look at to being a transparent medium that you look through. That's when the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. When the word of Christ, when the word of God actually makes sense of everything in your life. And how does that happen? How do we do it? Well, certainly it happens by private reading and by meditating on God's word privately. But I love this. It it, it happens in a deeper way when we do it with one another, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing. How's the word of Christ gonna dwell in your hearts? You sing hymns and spiritual songs. That's why, you know, guys, I I want to encourage y'all. The singing part, the the time we come and sing, it's so important. This is, you're you're here for one another. We're admonishing one another. We're reminding one another of what is true about God, what is true about the world. And this isn't just, you know, Jordan Coughlin could have been a rock star moment. No, you know, what he's doing, what he's doing is he's taking those gifts and he's saying, no, I want us to, I want us to teach and admonish one another so that the word of Christ may dwell in us richly. Put on godliness. Look to the person of Christ. Live in the word of Christ. Live by the word of Christ. And last thing, operate in the name of Christ. Whatever you do in word or deed, in, every, in everything, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to the Father through him. You've been raised with Christ. Do you hear this? You have died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ. Christ is your life. I love that phrase. Christ is your life. When Christ, who is your life, Christ who is your life. We we often said this little Dallas Willard quote, that the Christian life is this, it's living your life as Christ would live it, as Jesus would live it if he were you. Christ is your life. When Christ is your life and when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. Live toward that, seek that. Do everything in the name of Jesus. Do everything as a representative of Jesus. You know, we're we're gonna sing in response and then we're gonna have baptisms. And I love that we are. Baptism, if you're kind of new to church, I always say it's the weirdest thing we do, right? If you're new to Christianity, you've heard somebody give a speech or a lecture before, like what I'm doing, this is a sermon. If you, you know, you've heard people sing, you know, Prayer is a little weird. Like maybe you were a little weirded out by Jordan's prayer of confession earlier. But baptism's really weird. Somebody's gonna tell what God did in their life and then another person's gonna dunk them in water. It's kind of like, what is is that all about? Here's what baptism is. And this is why it's so powerful. It's a sign. It's a signpost for us. It's one of those things that reminds us of the peace of Christ. It's one of those things that reminds us that we have died with Christ and we're raised with Christ all throughout the Bible, water is actually a symbol of God's judgment. I mean, think about the story of Noah. Think of God destroying the Egyptians in the Red Sea. Think of Jonah's storm came when he was on the sea, was thrown into the raging sea. When someone's baptized, they're giving you a physical picture of something spiritually that's happened in their life. They're saying, I've realized that I was made for God and I've blown it I was made to worship God, and I've blown it. I haven't loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I was made for God, and my life, I've blown it. And so I deserve to die. I actually deserve to be put under the judgment of God. But God, in his mercy, has raised me. I have died with Christ. And on the cross, when Jesus paid for my sins, he was paying for my sins. That, that was my death. And now, because of Jesus, I'm raised with Christ. I'm called to a new life. It's a physical sign of something spiritual that's happened in the life of every believer. But here's the real good news of baptism. It's a physical sign of something physical that will happen to you if you're in Christ. It's a physical sign of something spiritual that has happened to you if you're in Christ. It's a physical sign of something physical that will happen to you if you're in Christ. Here's the deal. One day, you're all gonna actually die unless the Lord returns. But the good news is, is that you've already died if you're in Christ. You don't have to face the judgment of God. You don't have to face the second death. And and upon your death, you will be raised to be with the Lord, where he has set all things new and right, where everything is whole, where all the sad things have come untrue. If you are in Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, If you've died with Christ, seek the things that are above. That is your life. Christ is your life. Let's focus on these things together. Let's pursue these. Let's live toward these things together as we look to Jesus.